Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. So we're continuing in the story of Luke as Luke lays out for us uh, the story of Jesus and what it means to be followers of Jesus and some of the themes that we're going to be looking at weekend after weekend as we go Oftentimes a few verses or even one verse, there's one verse through this gospel of Luke. Some of the themes that we're going to continue to look at together. One of them is the theme that Luke draws out again and again is the theme, no more outsiders. Luke is the one Gentile author in all of scripture, 66 books in the Bible. There's only two written by a Gentile and that's the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Luke as a two volume story about Jesus, the Holy Spirit and the church. And so that theme of no more outsiders, because Luke kind of, although he was a physician and well-respected in some ways, being raised up in kind of a Jewish world and being a Gentile and then operating within what was seen as a sect of Judaism, this following of Jesus thing, but still being an outsider in so many ways, Luke writes from the perspective of Jesus moving to the margins all the time. And he does that throughout his gospel. You'll see Jesus confront religious leaders and confront voices that are against what Jesus is doing. And immediately Jesus will go to the margins after that conflict and he'll help somebody who's in need. He'll walk to the vulnerable spaces and announce that the breaking in of the kingdom of God is right where you don't expect it to be. And Luke does it again and again and again. And so that theory, serious theme of no more outsiders is what we're going to be coming to. And there's no class system in the kingdom that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and all those needing mercy and grace can find it abundantly in Jesus Christ. Another theme that we see throughout the book of Luke is that there is this resistance against what's the voice of a religious spirit. And almost every weekend, we're going to be seeing how the resistance against Jesus comes to the voice of this religious spirit, which is different than religion. Religion is just the practice of faith. But a religious spirit is the spirit that animates the fear and control and harm that is done in creating class systems and compartments and communities of faith. And Jesus, time and time again, and Luke just draws us right to the surface, that Jesus is absolutely in opposition to the voice of a religious spirit that is a call towards legalism and performance and a kind of perfection that becomes the burden and the weight that people carry that God never intended people to carry and that Jesus has come to set us free from the burden of religious performance and to set us free into fullness of life. We're going to see that even a little bit in our text here today. As we come into Luke over the last number of weekends, there's a lot of tension that's starting to build within Luke's gospel. A lot of tension in the book up to this point because Luke is masterfully telling a story in two parallel lines. If you start at the beginning of Luke, you read about someone named John and you read about someone named Jesus and they kind of have these parallel lines going. And Luke is setting up this idea for everyone to wonder, well, which one is the Messiah? Which one has come to set people free from sin and death? Because you have John and you have Jesus, and they happen to be related. They're cousins. They're both born by miraculous birth. They both absolutely carry the obvious anointing of God on their lives. And by chapter 3, verse 15 of Luke, people are starting to wonder if John is the one they've been waiting for. And that's kind of the tension that's built in the book a little bit. It's like you have these couple of characters that are riding side by side, and you're wondering, Which one is the one that God has anointed to bring freedom for people to ensure that there's no more outsiders? 
And as people come to John and say, hey, John, um, in our mind, you seem like a prime candidate for messiahship. And if you kind of took on your campaign here, you're kind of a wild dude. We think that Rome's kind of afraid of you. If we got behind you in your, you know, camel skin and eating all your locusts and everything, that throws people off, which is awesome. We could get behind your leadership and we could have a new day dawn where we could be free from political and economic oppression. And John replies, I am not the one you're looking for. And he just distinctly lays out and he says, I'm just here to prepare the way for the one who will come. And he says this, I'm baptizing you with water. And so that's what John was doing. He was in the Jordan River and he was baptizing people with what's called a baptism of repentance. It was this idea that we're leaving our life of sin and moving towards righteousness. And Matt talked about last weekend what that looks like to live a life of repentance towards the way of God. And so John is here preparing people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And he says, but I'm not the one because I can just baptize you with water. But there is one coming who will baptize you in water and the Holy Spirit. And so John gives, the, gives this key to people. He says, you watch for the coming of the Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you will absolutely know who Messiah is. And you'll never have to wonder again who it really is. And so now the tension is built as we come to chapter 3, verse 21. And as Jesus makes into his way into the water to be baptized by John. And here's what happens. It says, while everyone else was being baptized, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And in Matthew's gospel, we have this benefit of this little interaction between Jesus and John, where John says, you know, Jesus, I of all people, I know who you are. There's no way I should be baptizing you. There's no way that I should be lowering you, Messiah, God in the flesh, into the water and getting your hair wet and pulling you back out in public and all this stuff. There's no way I should be doing this. But Jesus says this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I am becoming people's righteousness and I'm going to take every step to show the longing of God for people to set them free towards righteousness. And so Jesus is baptized and it says, and then he prays. And so you can imagine Jesus going down into the water and he's lifted back out and he's praying. We're going to get to how important that prayer is in just a moment. As he's praying, it says the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, which means people saw what was happening. It was an indicator of what John had just talked about. This is when you watch for the Spirit, when you see the Spirit come, you'll know who Messiah is. But then there's just more than the Spirit because the Spirit descends. Was it an actual dove? Probably not. Luke is making the idea that the descending of the Spirit is like the gentleness of a dove. It's this, it doesn't come with power and oppression and manipulation. It comes in gentleness and peace. The Spirit comes that way and rests on Jesus in bodily form. The embodiment of the Spirit then is Jesus Christ himself. And then we hear the voice from heaven. You are my son, whom I love, and I am well pleased with you. You have Jesus in prayer. You have the Spirit descending. You have the Father speaking affirmation. This one is my son, and I am so happy with him. I delight in him. I'm so happy he exists. And this is one of those key Christian passages of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. If you've been around church a long time, you probably know about that, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're new to, the, uh, new to Christianity or new to the church. And let me tell you, this whole doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most difficult things to explain because in kind of our Western culture, we want mathematical explanations for things. And the doctrine of the Trinity is way more of a mystery. 
And maybe you thought, well, maybe there's good analogies. And I'm just going to tell you right now, any analogy that you've come up with or anyone else has come up with about the Trinity, the, the God's like an egg with the shell and the yolk and the white. No, not like that. Well, God's like an apple. No, God's not like an apple. Not like that. Or God's like water vapor and ice and liquid. No. Any illustration, any metaphor that we try to apply to Father, Son, and Spirit will let us down severely. We're supposed to embrace the mystery of the Trinity, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in essence existing in three persons, undivided, calling us into the fellowship and unity of the Godhead. And you can say, well, that's, that's really hard to understand. It's like, yes, Christianity is a lot about the embracing of mystery as a beauty, not as something to overcome. And so the mystery of the Trinity is here before us. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in agreement, one in essence, three persons. Like, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And if anyone was confused about who the Messiah was, it's all been cleared up now. Because Jesus is in the water and people hear the voice from heaven, which will happen again in Jesus' ministry and the descending of the Spirit. And as much as the first few chapters of Luke are all about John, it now becomes all about Jesus. And this is where we see a turn in Luke's gospel towards everything being about Jesus. And we really can't miss what Luke is setting up here. Luke is wanting us to notice something in all that he's displaying, what's going to be happening starting this weekend and through the next few weekends. He's wanting us to notice the replaying of an ancient story. That as much as Jesus is initiating the new community of faith, he's initiating a new humanity, the firstborn over all creation, coming and dwelling among us as God in the flesh. Luke's also saying that Jesus is replaying an ancient story. And it's the story of the Exodus and the Israelites. They're released from slavery in Egypt of 430 years. And you're going to see it more in the weeks to come. But it starts here with this baptism. And again, there's parallel stories, and Luke loves to do this, that while you see the one story happening, there's a parallel story. And he's calling us to remember the Exodus. And maybe you haven't read Exodus, don't know that story. Maybe you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, kind of like that, if you're not familiar with the Bible. The whole freedom from slavery of the Hebrew people from Egypt. It was people living under a reign of darkness, people living under a reign of terror and oppression and slavery, and in being freed, the Israelites are brought through the water, through the Red Sea. It's like they're, the scriptures even talk about it being a kind of baptism. It's through the water, into the wilderness, on the way to freedom. And Luke is laying out for us in the story of Jesus. Jesus is retelling the story through his own life. And where Israel kept stumbling and falling, Jesus is now redoing the story perfectly, without faltering to secure our redemption. What no one could do in keeping the law perfectly, Jesus does perfectly for us. And coming through the water, this initiation that's kind of happening into his ministry, he even says, and this is where Jesus' ministry began. It was like this turning point. We're going to get there. Where Jesus steps out of the life he was living into the life of the kingdom and introducing people to what God is really like. So all of this is going along in this couple of verses that uh, Carol read for us. But I think the question that's sitting here for us, the question that I kind of grappled through as I was praying for us this weekend is, is why did Jesus have to be baptized? If he is who he says he is, and it's who John says he is, I mean, why is Jesus being baptized? And then secondly, with that, so Jesus gets baptized, what are the implications for us? Does it matter? And friends, I'm going to submit to you this this weekend. 
that if you capture the implications of Jesus' baptism and our baptism, it has the potential to set your life on a whole new trajectory of peace, of assurance, and fullness. If you capture what's being taught here this weekend in the next few moments, it has the potential to set your life on a whole new trajectory of peace and of assurance and of, and of fullness. Now, it's a bold claim. And you said, wait, that's a bold claim. Yes, it is, but I'm confident in what Jesus is doing. So why was Jesus baptized? I want to give you three because I'm a preacher. I do things in threes. That's how I was taught. There's probably more, but I'm going to give you three. If you're a note taker, you can take notes down. That's not going to come up on the screen and just invite you to listen if you want to. Three, three things. Why was Jesus baptized? And every single one of these has enormous implications for us today. First, Jesus was baptized to mark a turning point in his life. Now, we don't know a lot about Jesus' early life. We have one indication in Luke and in John where Jesus is at the temple. We have interactions with him as a young boy. But other than that, kind of his first 30 years is a bit of a mystery. We can assume that he's been faithfully plying his trade as a craftsman and caring for his mother and brothers, which again, Luke gives indication of as we move through the gospel that Jesus did care for his family. History tells us, tradition tells us that Joseph, his dad, his earthly dad had passed away at some point. And so Jesus is the oldest, is kind of caring for his family and faithfully plying this trade as a craftsman. But something happens at the age of 30, and it's when it's when what's called his rabbinical career begins. And a rabbi was simply a teacher of Israel. They were someone who had already been declared worthy to take the scriptures, our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and give fresh interpretation to it for that generation. And so Jesus had been tested and approved to be a teacher of Israel, to be a rabbi. And your rabbinical career begins at about 30 years old. And so that's what's happening here. And baptism was marking a turning point in his life. Jesus is being baptized to say, whatever my life was before, I'm now moving it in a different direction. I'm moving it in a direction towards the inbreaking of the kingdom and what the Father is up to in the world. That's what I'm going to be about. So baptism marks a turning point in his life. But secondly, he was baptized to submit to the filling and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus needed to submit to the filling and guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's so interesting. It says in our text that as Je after Jesus was baptized, he was praying. And Luke uses a really interesting word. Like there's a word for prayer that he could have used right there, but he uses a different word. That our English language, we kind of have pray as kind of one word to cover it all. In Greek, is a number of words. And the word that Luke uses here to say that Jesus was praying was like this. It's like Jesus was baptized. And as he was standing there, we say he was praying. Heaven was opened. Luke says, and as he was exchanging wills, heaven was opened. Jesus is exchanging wills and wants that he may have for whatever God the Father is going to be calling him toward. It's an exchange of wills. You see this later on, much later in Luke, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion. And what does he pray? Father, take this cup from me, right? I don't, I don't, I don't actually want the suffering, but not my will. Yours be done to the glory of God the Father. But it starts here. In the exchanging of wills and wants. And Jesus, in his baptism, is saying, I'm actually now going to submit. God in the flesh is now submitting to the filling 
and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we see this visible descending of the Spirit. It's letting us know that what you're about to see is a truly empowered life. Everything Jesus did, he did in his Spirit-filled humanity. Jesus was always God and always human. But what the Scriptures teach about the nature of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2 talks about this, that in deciding to take on flesh and walk among us, that Jesus emptied himself. It's a word called kenosis. It's the pouring out of himself and the limiting of himself. God limits himself within human flesh and bone in the person of Jesus Christ to show us what true humanity is supposed to look like, to show us what spirit-filled humanity looks like and ought to be like. And so everything Jesus did Luke is going to make this so clear. He's doing in his spirit-filled humanity. Now, some of us, when we read the story of Jesus, we think it's a little unfair because he's got a God switch. And I don't have a God switch, and you don't have a God switch. And so Jesus is going along, and a miracle needs to be done. So it's like, whoop, time for the God part. He flips on the God switch, and the human part goes off. He does something amazing. But when he's tired... And even, it's true, Jesus gets a little cranky sometimes, a little edgy, not sinning, but a little cranky. Oh, that's me. That's the human switch that's come on and the God switch is off. That is not what's happening in the person of Jesus Christ. Fully human, fully divine, yet limiting himself, boundarying himself in human form. And then everything Jesus does, he does in his spirit-filled humanity. So that what? So that people like you and me, when we are filled with the same Holy Spirit, we hold the potential of Christ to live in his way. Because he doesn't have the God switch he was playing that we don't have that card to play. He's saying a full life surrendered to the Holy Spirit can look like this. And Jesus makes the bold claim that says, and if you're filled with this Spirit, you're going to do greater things than even I did. And the disciples, what? and we're stunned by that. That Jesus could make this audacious claim that the outpouring of the Spirit is so lavish and so generous. When you get filled with the Spirit, you can live like Jesus. And that's not some lofty claim that's unattainable in full submission to the Spirit. We can be led into that life. So, Jesus is submitting to the filling of the Holy Spirit. What you're going to see in the next few weekends is that about eight times in the next 15 to 20 verses, I think, it's probably a little bit more, Luke reiterates, he says things like, and led by the Spirit, Jesus, and empowered by the Spirit, Jesus, and anointed by the Spirit, Jesus. And Luke is just like hammering away. He's saying, don't you see, this is a life lived under submission to the Spirit. This is what life can look like when lived by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is baptized to mark a turning point in his life and then to submit to the filling and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So when he says, follow me and be filled with the Spirit, he's creating a picture of what a full human life in submission to the Spirit can look like. And then third, he was baptized to publicly embrace what we're calling his baptismal identity. To publicly embrace his baptismal identity. When the voice from heaven, this is God the Father speaking, other Gospels talk about this, and God the Father speaks over Jesus as he's praying, heaven's open, the Spirit descends, now you have Father, Son, and Spirit in total agreement about everything that's happening. And the voice of God the Father begins with this phrase, You are my son. You are is an identity statement. It's saying, I know who you are, and you know who you are. I want everybody to know who you really are. And he says, you are my son. 
whom I love. I delight in you, and I'm so happy with you. Now remember, I think this is amazing. Jesus really hasn't done much yet, has he? I mean, he hasn't fed 5,000 people. He hasn't walked on water. He hasn't walked up to a little girl who everyone says is dead and have him reach through death and with a word to leave the coom, which is like, little one, get up, reach through death and pull a little girl back to life. He hasn't done any of that. He's done nothing in way of performance to say, oh, there's something to be proud of here. And yet the father looks at the son and in absolute delight says, just for who you are, I love you, I delight in you, I'm so proud of you. Isn't this wonderful that we get to share in this together? And Jesus, throughout the rest of his ministry, continues to live into his baptismal identity. It's fascinating to me when we get to the temptation narrative uh, next weekend and the devil comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. You know how the temptation begins? If you're really God's son, if you're really, and all of a sudden the questions about identity start, and it kind of, haunt, it kind of torments and or tempts Jesus throughout his life to forget his true identity and live in another way, but Jesus never does. He stands secure in his identity as a son who is loved and delighted in, in all those ways. Those are the reasons Jesus was baptized. And friends, the reason Jesus was baptized is the same reason we get baptized. We get baptized to mark a turning point in our lives. Baptism is a way of us saying, however my life used to be and by whatever allegiances and appetites I used to live my life, I'm demonstrating something that's gone on inside of me. That to be baptized means that now I'm following Jesus and I'm following no other one. I'm following no other voice. I'm following him and him alone. And so that his desires become my desires. His longings become my longing as I'm no longer motivated by anything other than Jesus. And so I'm going to mark that turning point by going down into the water, dying with Christ and being raised with him in the same way. And I'm marking a turning point in my life to say, I am now the whole trajectory of my life is away from sin and brokenness and towards life and holiness in Christ. And that's what happens in our baptism. Jesus was marking a turning point in his life toward that rabbinical ministry, we mark the turning point in our life as an act of repentance, saying, whatever my life was about before, my life is now about fullness of life and practicing the way of Jesus. We also get baptized for the same reason that we, we are submitting to the guidance and filling of the Holy Spirit. That to be a follower of Jesus, it's absolutely essential that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. To try to live the Christ life as an act of religious obligation will crush you and leave your soul decimated, exhausted, tired, and divided. To simply set before you a goal, I'm going to live like Jesus, and then through grit and willpower and just trying, will leave you absolutely and utterly devastated. You can't. That's why the gift of the Holy Spirit and submitting to the way of the Spirit is so critical to us as followers of Jesus. When we're submitting to the guidance and filling of the Spirit, we're admitting that we can't but that God can. And the life that he has for us is potential and possible now because we are filled with the Spirit of God. One thing you'll see when we baptize people here to go down in the water, as they come back up, everyone's clapping and cheering. It's a wonderful celebration, which it ought to be. But then you'll see who's ever baptizing to take some oil and anoint the person's head. And the reason we're doing that at all of our baptism services is that we're praying that in the same way that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, for the life he was supposed to live, 
that we in the same way could be filled with that same Holy Spirit and guided into the right kind of life that he has for us, an empowered life, not a life of willpower and just trying to make people happy or trying to make God happy, resting in the delight of God and filled with the Spirit, resting in the power of the Spirit for the life that he has for us. But the reason, the third reason that we're baptized, much like Jesus, is to publicly embrace our baptismal identity. If you followed Jesus and given your life to him and been baptized, did you know that you actually have a baptismal identity? I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but it's how the church has talked about what happens in our baptism for generations, thousands of years, is that you actually have an identity that has been spoken over you by the very God that created the whole universe and he gives an identity to you and he speaks it over you. So what do you think it is? Like, what's your baptismal identity? What if your baptismal identity is the same as Jesus' baptismal identity? What if the one thing that God is saying to you most, that God the Father is speaking over your life most profoundly in these days is the same words he spoke to Jesus the Son? Is that possible? That God would look at you? That God would look at your life and maybe you haven't done much or maybe you haven't performed well, but you've decided to follow Jesus and you've gone into the waters of baptism. What if you were to hear the voice of the Father say today, oh, this one's my daughter. This one's my son. This one's my child. I delight in you with all of my heart. I am so proud of you. It's so wonderful that you exist. What a life that we can live together. Friends, when you think of God speaking to you and saying something to you, is that what you think he says to you? You know, over the last couple of decades and a bit of pastoring in local churches, this one included, you know, one of the number one things that I get to walk with people through in my own life and in theirs is clarifying what God actually sounds like and what he says to us about who we are. There are so many folks, even in this last season, you know, people, you know, in the room with them as they're breathing their last and moving from this life into the next life, having lived for Jesus, and they're facing the next life, having confessed Christ and been baptized and part of churches, but they're absolutely terrified because what if at the end God changes his mind about me? And what if he doesn't love me? What if I'm not that son or daughter that I hope to be? What if he doesn't delight in me? And the amount of us that are absolutely just so crushed by the fear that what God would say to us is something judgmental and harsh and mean, and that somewhere in our story, someone has hijacked the voice of God in our lives and you're hearing other voices and you're thinking it's God when it's not. The thing that we get to embrace today in our baptismal identity, the scripture says that what the Father speaks over Jesus, this is the promise of the scripture, verified and held, deposited of the Holy Spirit, the same thing the Father speaks to Jesus, he does speak to you. That is his voice over you. Romans 6, 4 says, We're therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, 
we too may live the new life of Christ. How about 1 John? 1 John 3, 1. If we're saying, well, of course the Father would say that to Jesus. He's Jesus, for goodness sake. <laughs> like, it's, But that's not me. And yet John, one of the apostles says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is who we are. One of the things that Jesus came to do most in his ministry was to reveal the heart of the Father to you. For generations and generations and generations, people had been attributing things to God wrongly and saying, well, that's what God is like and that's what God is like. And John, and even John chapter 1 says, as everyone's getting it wrong about God, Jesus shows up as the full embodiment of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God in the flesh dwells among us to what? To show us what God is really like and what he sounds like. If the God you're following and the God you're worshiping doesn't sound like Jesus Christ, you're worshiping the wrong God. Anything Jesus would say, anything the Father said over Jesus, he now says to you, it's the promise of Scripture. And it's what the Spirit affirms, that we are children of God. And how does God speak to his kids? You're mine. And I love you. And I delight in you. And there's no greater power in the universe than to orient your life around the true testimony of God himself who says, I know who you are and you're mine and I have you. What difference would it make in your life if you knew today that you never ever once had to earn God's love and approval and favor for you? See, so often I think we get caught in what I call Christian superstition. We end up being way more superstitious than we end up actually being Christian. Superstition says, I'm going to do things towards the deity to gain good favor back. I'm going to try to turn the tables of favor and blessing toward me in a particular way through my action and activity. So it's like this. I'm going to obey so I can get love. And Jesus comes and he flips it all. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, he flips it all. He says, actually, you are loved, so now you have freedom to live. You don't obey to get God's love. You are loved, so you're free to live into the life that God has for you. And I just think so many of us have been tied down in fear of wondering what God is saying to us. Can I tell you this? How about this is the weekend where we reaffirm our baptismal identity and we stand as children of God, loved by God, delighted in by God, filled with the Spirit, ready to live full lives of blessing to this world to bring heaven to earth and see things change all around us. When we choose to follow Jesus and are baptized, we're declaring to the seen and the unseen world about who we really are. And we are baptized into a name. Matthew 28 talks about Jesus' command to go and baptize. This is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This wonderful trinity of perfect fellowship baptized people into that kind of fellowship. In John 17, as Jesus is praying to the Father, he's saying, Father, I want all of us to be together as one, all the people, as you and I are one, as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. We'll make people into that oneness with us, where love is never questioned. Do you think Jesus ever questions the love of the Father? No. I'll answer that one for you. No, never. Does the Spirit ever question the love of Jesus? No. Does the Father ever question the love of the Spirit? No. You have this perfect community of absolute perfect love, and Jesus' big prayer in John 17 
Jesus, Jesus says, Father, I want that for all the people. That's what he's praying for. And we're baptized into that name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And the reality of the scriptures is that living the Spirit-filled life, to live into your baptismal identity, means that you live as a baptized one. Yeah, worship team, come on up. Shalina knew I was closing. When you get to live into your baptismal identity, it means you live baptized every single day. Sometimes we think of baptism as like a moment, like we went into the water and that was it. And I was baptized. You know, the scriptures talk about it. It says you are baptized. It says every single day, you walk in the reality of your baptismal identity. You are a baptized one. It means we know who you belong to. You know who you belong to. To live into that idea that you are son, you are daughter, you are delighted and loved. Hence the bold claim at the beginning. It literally changes everything. Friends, you don't have to be afraid of what God thinks of you or what he's saying over you. You have an identity that God has spoken over you that is the greatest power in the universe. Power that you are loved and embraced and delighted in. So I'm going to pray for us as we affirm that truth through song in just a little minute. Let's pray. And so, Father, thank you that you give us a true demonstration of what it is to live the fullness of life by walking in the way of Jesus. And thanks that there's lots of ways to respond today. Friends, I, I forgot to mention this. Like if you actually want to get baptized, we're planning for like a big baptism party on Palm Sunday. And you can enter the waters of baptism and you can identify with Christ. You can mark that turning point, submit to the Spirit, and receive a baptismal identity that changes everything about who you are. And you can talk to one of us. We'll be glad to point you towards that. For others, maybe it's just time to hear the voice of the Father speaking truth over you about who you are. And today's a day of, <clears throat> of freedom where the voice of a religious spirit has been saying, perform better, do better, earn more, you're obligated. Here's what you ought to do. Here's what you should do. And so in the name and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, again, we are in active resistance against a religious spirit that is obligating us with a burden of performance. We instead choose our place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as sons and daughters of God, dearly loved, called towards freedom for the glory of his name and the blessings of people on this earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.